0: Good morning. I'm James Holman from The Washington Post, and this is The Daily 202 for Tuesday, May 12. In today's news, the White House implements a stringent mask policy, but President Trump still won't wear one. Thermal scanners are the latest technology being used to detect the contagion. They don't really work. And after years of struggles amid Trump's trade wars, Farmers and ranchers face their worst crisis since the early 1980s. But first, the big idea. Johnson & Johnson's race to manufacture a billion doses of coronavirus vaccine is ramping up in a small biotechnology plant near Interstate 95 in Baltimore. But even as technicians prepare to brew the first batches of an experimental vaccine, international concern is bubbling about what countries will get the first inoculations. The Baltimore plant is the second of four locations around the world where j and plans to pump out vaccine on a massive scale, months before testing the first dose in a human being. The manufacturing head start is one part of a worldwide scramble to protect the human race from the virus, which is not expected to vanish on its own. If this novel coronavirus establishes itself as a stubborn endemic virus like influenza, medical experts say there almost certainly will not be enough vaccine for at least several years, even with the unprecedented effort to manufacture billions of doses. Scientists say that about 70% of the world's population, or 5.6 billion people, will probably need to be inoculated to begin to establish herd immunity and slow the spread of this invisible enemy. Yet the nationalistic priorities of individual nations could thwart the strategic imperative to tamp down hotspots wherever they are on the planet, including poor countries that cannot afford the vaccine. The scenario public health experts fear the most is a worldwide fight in which manufacturers sell only to the highest bidders, rich countries try to buy up the supplies, and nations where manufacturers are located hoard vaccines for their own citizens. Here in the United States, the federal government agency in charge of emergency vaccine development indicated this week that it is prioritizing domestic concerns with an America-first mentality that has shaped so much of the Trump administration's response to this contagion. The global grab for protective equipment and ventilators that left poorer countries empty-handed suggests that the competition over vaccines could be at least, if not more, fierce. Dozens of companies, large and small, are rushing to develop vaccines using different technologies and approaches. Avalier Health, a pharmaceutical consulting company, is tracking at least 120 separate vaccine projects sponsored by governments, universities, nonprofit institutes, and private companies. Large-scale manufacturing capacity will be required to produce viable products out of these experiments and then clinical trials. Some vaccines may require two different doses, putting even greater strain on manufacturing capacity. Recognizing the financial and logistical bottlenecks for smaller biotech companies, philanthropist and Microsoft founder Bill Gates announced last month that his foundation will make billions of dollars available to help seven undisclosed companies build out their manufacturing capacity. Now, the race for a vaccine is full of risks because no one knows which projects will pan out. That forces companies to scale up to produce millions of doses of vaccine that might end up being totally worthless. Another risk is that the United States might not be well positioned if the best vaccines end up coming from other countries or international collaborations, such as a development and manufacturing cooperative deal that world leaders pledged billions of dollars toward this month at an online event the Trump administration decided to skip. The U.S. could be left in the cold if vaccines developed here, as part of a go-it-alone approach, turn out to be less effective than those being produced in Europe or even China. A top executive at Johnson & Johnson did not commit to specific volumes or timing of delivery of the vaccine in the U.S., citing the need to evaluate global priorities to stop the pandemic. J&J wants to produce 1 billion doses, ideally by the end of 2021, making the first doses available as early as this winter. Where vaccine will be most needed is not known at this point, Although healthcare workers will be the highest priority. Paul Stoffels, Jane Jay's executive vice president and chief science officer, said his company is committed to satisfying demand wherever it is most needed, and he says his company is not interested in making a profit on this vaccine. And that's the big idea. Here are three other headlines that should be on your radar this Tuesday. Number one, The United States continues to be, by far, the world's hottest hotspot, with 1.34 million confirmed cases and more than 80,000 deaths. President Trump claimed on Monday that the coronavirus numbers here are decreasing almost everywhere. In fact, while the overall new number of national daily infections in the U.S. has declined from its peak in mid-April, largely thanks to a decline in New York, the daily case totals in several states continue spiking, including my home state of Minnesota, plus Maryland, Nebraska, South Dakota, and Kansas. The ground truth continues to undercut the overly sunny portrait that Trump is offering every day at the White House. Trump also claimed yesterday that the United States leads the world in testing. The numbers tell a different story. The U.S. has completed nearly 9 million coronavirus tests. That's an enormous number. The figure, though, is equivalent to just 2.7% of our population. These are far lower numbers than per capita testing rates other places. In fact, more than 30 countries have higher per capita testing numbers than we do. In tiny Iceland, the figure is an extraordinary 15.4%, although that's 54,000 tests across a population of 352,000 people. But Italy has conducted tests of 4.3% of its population, and Germany is at 3.35% of its population. Now, a memo that went out yesterday afternoon instructed most White House officials that they need to wear masks or face coverings whenever they're in the West Wing and avoid unnecessary visits there. In a sign of the haphazard effort to impose more stringent safety standards inside the White House where the contagion has been spreading, a senior administration official and several other aides were literally arguing to reporters that masks were unnecessary for people who are getting regular tests just moments before the directive was sent out. Vice President Pence, who was exposed to his infected press secretary, has declined to fully isolate himself, despite the CDC's recommendation that people in close contact with someone who has the virus remain at home for 14 days to protect others. Public health officials say that by flouting the administration's own best practices, White House officials, including the vice president, are not just modeling poor behavior for the public, but putting themselves and the president at risk. A senior administration official says the vice president and president are expected to maintain distance from each other for the immediate future and will try to avoid being in the same room. Now, the new memo does not apply to staff members seated at their desks if they're appropriately socially distanced. And aides say Trump is not expected to wear a mask in the White House anytime soon. Staff worries have largely been based on their relative proximity to Trump. Those who interact with the president regularly are getting tested every day, which has helped reassure them as to their own safety. But those who don't regularly see the president yet work in the West Wing or the Eisenhower Executive Office building are not tested as frequently and are much more anxious about catching or spreading the virus. The result has been something of an unspoken caste system among White House staff. Even inside the West Wing, there exists the haves and the have-nots, with less senior officials feeling more vulnerable Yet, there has also been some internal resistance to the more stringent measures. Some White House officials believe CDC Director Robert Redfield and FDA Commissioner Stephen Hahn, both of whom are quarantining for 14 days after their exposure to Pence's press secretary Katie Miller, are overreacting. Because the president is often swayed by those in closest contact with him, aides and advisors have felt particular pressure to stay as physically close to him as possible. That's why Trump campaign manager Brad Parscale has flown twice to Washington from his house in Florida, while Republican National Committee Chairwoman Ronna McDaniel has done so once from her home in Michigan. In both cases, they came for meetings with the president that could have easily been done over the phone. Number two, companies and communities eager to get back to work have touched off a nationwide gold rush for thermal scanners, which measure the heat on a person's skin and can be used to estimate when someone is feverish. But industry veterans say the frenzy is also stirring up confusion and leading some small businesses and public officials to spend heavily on cameras without understanding their many limitations, namely that they're not actually very good at detecting infections. While the systems can sense elevated skin temperatures, they aren't precise enough to tell whether someone has a fever or something else. The warmth of a person's skin is often quite different from their core body heat. People with heavier builds, health conditions, or hot flashes can trigger the system's alarms. So, too, can anyone walking inside from a hot car or a parking lot. And what we've learned in recent weeks is that many, if not most, people with COVID-19 infections have not actually had fevers at all. Number three. Trump promised earlier this year to deliver a financial bonanza for American farmers boosted by new trade deals that he said would free them from their dependence on years of government bailouts necessitated by his decision to start trade wars with countries across the world, especially China. Instead, as Wendy's runs out of hamburgers and many shelves at Costco start to lay bare, farmers are forced to euthanize millions of hogs and chickens Give away tons of unwanted potatoes and pour out enough milk to fill lakes. The closure of most U.S. restaurants amid the pandemic has thrown our $2 trillion food industry into chaos, convulsing specialized supply chains that are struggling to adjust. The health crisis has also exposed an agricultural economy that. Despite repeated injections of taxpayer bailouts, finds many farmers under growing and unexpected financial pressure. Prices for commodities like corn and wheat have dropped since March by double-digit percentages. Ranchers have seen a nearly 40% decline in the price of live cattle, exacerbated by the closures of a dozen large meatpacking plants across the country amid the spread of the virus. Because of corporate consolidation, a handful of companies control almost the entire meatpacking market and at about a dozen states are now pleading with the Justice Department to investigate whether those companies are colluding to keep prices for them artificially low. The processors deny any wrongdoing, but the ranchers are squeezed. In our heartland, this crisis is breaking. Strong farmers who have spent their lives waking up before dawn to work the fields. Scott Bluebaugh, a 55-year-old cattle rancher and a crop farmer in Oklahoma, said last year's trade war payments from the government covered only about 60% of his lost soybean sales. He says the $19 billion that the $2 trillion Care Act allocated for farmers is completely inadequate. As president of his state's Farmers Union, Bluebop takes referrals from the National Farm Aid Hotline. On May 1st, his statewide group set up its own suicide hotline for farmers with three trained ranchers to answer emergency calls. The memory of one recent call has stayed with Scott, who recalled that a man had a gun loaded and his wife called Farmaid for help. As Scott recalled, the man was crying and saying, quote, I just want out of this. This is a hard time for a lot of Americans. And that's the Daily 202 for Tuesday, May 12th. Thanks for listening. I'm James Holman. I'll talk to you tomorrow.